They say Annie Oakley was the best sharpshooter in the West. Standing just five feet tall, Annie Oakley traveled throughout the country through most of her life, showcasing her incredible ability to shoot just about anything, whether it was big or small, moving or stationary, anything. Annie worked well into her 60s as a performer, showcasing her canny deadshot skills in consistently sensational ways, even as the era of entertainment that defined her life faded during the early 20th century. That didn't stop Annie Oakley. Born in Ohio in 1860, the daughter of Quakers, Annie was born Phoebe Ann Mosey. She had begun shooting as a child, hunting so successfully throughout her youth that she was paid to start showcasing that skill in competitions. The man who hired her for that gig, his name was, apparently, Jack Frost, quote, a hotel owner in Cincinnati, end quote, and he put her in a sharpshooting contest up against another marksman, the man who would be her husband, Frank Butler. Frank was already a showman marksman traveling the country with his skills. This is from the Buffalo Bill Center of the West, who you'll hear more from in a moment. Quote, Annie won the match with 25 shots out of 25 attempts. Butler missed one of his shots. End quote. Annie, a teenager, was out shooting men twice her age. She and Frank would marry in 1876. She was 16. He was 39. They would be together until their passing. By 1882, Annie and Frank would start performing together, a performing partnership that would last another four decades. They would travel all over the country and the world, showing their incredible ability, but Annie was the star. There's a reason you know her name. Annie Oakley was larger than life. As she pushed into her 60s, Annie found herself ready for a new chapter, a retirement of sorts, but still very much performing. Something, however, stood in her way, an accident that occurred in the state of Florida, unfortunately. This comes from our friend Rick Kilby, who published an article all about Annie Oakley in the magazine Reflections back in the autumn of 2019. I'll include a link, give it a read. Rick is always insightful. Be sure to check out anything Rick writes. Rick details an important chapter in Annie Oakley's life. Florida's presence in it is sadly an unfortunate one. So in 1922, Annie was in the midst of her comeback. The Center of the West says, quote, Attracting large crowds in Massachusetts, New York, and major cities, she had plans to star in a motion picture. Unfortunately, at the end of the year, she and Butler were severely injured in an automobile accident. End quote. Rick Kilby writes that Annie and Frank, along with other quote-unquote snowbirds, were heading towards Leesburg, Florida on the Dixie Highway, a major roadway at that time, heading towards Daytona. None of the snowbirds were driving. In fact, a chauffeur was driving the convertible, Rick writes. Quote, There are multiple accounts of what happened next, but the results were conclusive. The car, quote-unquote, turned turtle. End quote. The car flipped. Annie Oakley, 60 years old, was pinned under the vehicle. Once at the hospital, it was discovered her hip and ankle were broken. It took her to the end of 1922 to get out of the hospital, but she did. There was some uncertainty about the sharpshooter's future. According to this article, Annie wore a leg brace for the rest of her life. Quite a physical constraint on someone known for her incredible mobility. But that was not the end of Annie's story, nor was it the end of Annie's story in Florida. In March of 1923, Annie went to a spring training game for the Philadelphia Phillies, who did their spring training in Leesburg at the time, where Annie wintered. Of course, she recovered from her accident in Leesburg, and once it was time for her to come back on stage, this was the right venue for her. She did a number of tricks before the gathered audiences of Philly fanatics, including shooting eggs out of the air and the real showstopper, quote, Oakley balanced on one leg and shot pennies tossed into the air, hitting a dozen without a miss, end quote. At the age of 62, less than six months after a near-fatal car accident, the show had to go on, and the best sharpshooter in the West showed that she still had it to the adoring crowds of Leesburg, Florida. 
Her most prominent years were behind her now, the age of the sharpshooter fading to the growing behemoth of cinema, but Annie still got her gun and made her shot. She would pass away four years later at the age of 66, a massive legend for a tiny woman. But you wouldn't know Annie Oakley's name from her pennies and her eggs that she blasted out of the air at a ballpark in Florida. You know her from a much bigger era of her life when she worked with her employer, the only man in America who could even remotely compete with Annie's star power at the turn of the century. His name was William Frederick Cody, but you know him by his stage name and his show, Buffalo Bill and his Wild West show. He would travel the world with this iconic show, and in 1912, as he was in his 60s at the end of his career, old Buffalo Bill Cody brought the Wild West to the Sunshine State. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. Today is the beginning of our spring season, and boy, did I miss you. I am so glad to be back. I've been working on these stories, and I am so excited for what we have ahead. I've been talking to some really phenomenal people traveling across the state, going some places I've always wanted to visit, and now I get to share those stories with you you. We've got some adventures up ahead, and we've got some fascinating characters ahead of us this season and this year. Authors, rum runners, politicians, baseball players, inventors, filmmakers, and architects. I promise you we've got a wild ride ready for you, and we are beginning with the story discovered by my friend, Bailey DeVoe, past guest of this show, as she and I were both out in Denver for my college roommate's wedding this past fall. She asked me a question that she had discovered in a museum. Did you know Buffalo Bill went to Florida? And naturally, that question sent me down a rabbit hole that brought me to the episode that you are about to hear. So let's get into it. Who is Buffalo Bill? What made him so special? And what exactly was so important about his performances here in Florida? Spoilers for the last question. It wasn't exactly special. In fact, it was a bit of a mess. Let's get into the story by hearing a song from the classic musical Annie Get Your Gun. Here is There's No Business Like Show Business. There's no business like show It is appealing Everything the traffic will allow Nowhere could you have that happy feeling When you are stealing Before we meet Buffalo Bill, we have to meet our guest this week, Jeremy Johnston, Ph.D., from the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming, a town indeed named for the man himself. But let's meet Jeremy and learn of his personal connection to Buffalo Bill, which honestly had my jaw on the floor. I am uh, Jeremy Johnston. So I am the Tate Endowed Chair of Western History at the Buffalo Bill Center of the West in Cody, Wyoming. Um, I've been a historian for all my life. Um, I was born and raised in Powell, Wyoming, which is just a few miles east of Cody. And actually, my great-great-grandfather worked for Buffalo Bill Cody. And I always... uh, was interested in history, mainly because I grew up around both sets of grandparents and two great-grandmothers, including one great-grandmother who walked from Shatner in Nebraska all the way to Cody, Wyoming with her family um, behind a wagon uh, back in 1890s. So um, anyway, I'd have any questions about uh, sites or the way things were done, celebrations, things like that. I'd always get a history listen from my grandparents. So um, when I went into college, I decided history would probably be the best best career for me. 
That's remarkable to have a family connection to that. You said your great, 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 great grandfather worked for Buffalo Bill in, in what capacity? Yeah, uh, Johnny Goff was his name, G-O-F-F. And he actually uh, was a hunting guide for Theodore Roosevelt in Colorado. And then uh, Theodore Roosevelt sent him up to Yellowstone National Park to serve as a game warden. And in 1906, he moved into the Cody region. And Buffalo Bill at the time was establishing a stage route between Cody, Wyoming, Yellowstone National Park. And in between was a an inn where people would stay overnight en route to Yellowstone. And Johnny Goff managed that for Buffalo Bill for a few years. The inn mentioned by Jeremy is one of the many businesses that Bill took up in his lifetime. He had a lot of endeavors, let's say, until he settled on the one that defined the rest of his life. So let's begin with Buffalo Bill, the man born William Frederick Cody. Buffalo Bill is one of those figures whose name you have known your whole life and you might not know anything about him. He's just that ubiquitous of a title. Obviously, the name has taken on other meanings and connections in the modern age. There is, of course, my beloved Buffalo Bills, reigning AFC East champions, though we were unfortunately yet again defeated in the divisional round by those Kansas City Chiefs, but they are literally named because they are based in Buffalo, New York, and they are the Buffalo Bills. Yes, that's genuinely why they are called that. It's kind of a pun and a very silly one that people might not even think about the Buffalo Bills, get it? There's also the villain in the stunning film Silence of the Lambs, directed by the fabulously talented Jonathan Demme. Uh, the villain in that film is named Buffalo Bill. He's a, a pretty bad man, but that is not our Buffalo Bill. No, our Buffalo Bill Cody was a performer, a cowboy, and at one time considered to be the most famous American in the world. William Cody was an entertainer and is known by some as the living embodiment of the West, at least at the time that he lived. It's not hard to understand why. His lifetime is a fascinating one. The exact period of America that he experienced is one of the most transformational in the two and a half centuries that we have existed as a country. He lived seven decades, but what a run of decades it was. Born in 1846, the country was only 70 years old at that time. Within a generation, the American Revolution had occurred. By the time the Civil War broke out, Buffalo Bill was a teenager, a grown man who served with the Union Army from 1863 to 1865. By the time Bill died, many decades later, America was embroiled in the First World War. He died in January of 1917. Think about that. America in 1846 and America in 1917, two completely different nations within one man's lifetime. And so much of that change and growth occurred or was influenced by the activities, the stories, the politics, and the impact of the American West, which Bill seemed to embody at that time. Bill lived in the West. He experienced it firsthand. He searched for gold in Colorado, moved from territory to territory, and was even a horse rider for the Pony Express when he was a teenager. Maybe. That story might be apocryphal. We'll talk about that in a bit. When he would go on to recreate the legend of the Wild West in his show, he didn't really need to fabricate anything. It was his own life, his own experiences, and the experiences of people he actually knew that he was putting on stage. He was born in LeClaire, Iowa, quote, just west of the Mississippi, end quote, which is a detail often mentioned in the biography of Buffalo Bill because the Mississippi River is the dividing line between the East and the West in America. The capital W West lies beyond the Mississippi River, the frontier beyond. His family had been on this continent for over a century by that point, coming to America as Huguenots, French Protestants during the 17th century who fled in search of religious freedom. 
Bill was not the only child in his family. He had many siblings, and they moved all around the West throughout most of his childhood, moving to Missouri, Kansas, Wyoming, all over. Yeah, sure. He was uh, born in Iowa, and the family started out as being typical homesteaders, typical settlers where they would go from one farm, one claim of land to another, improve it, and then kind of move on. Um, After the death of Buffalo Bill's older brother, who died in a horse accident, uh, they moved to Kansas. And this is really the big transition in Buffalo Bill's, young Buffalo Bill's life. You know, basically the family finds itself right in the middle of this debate about the expansion of slavery. Uh, You had people moving into Kansas that uh, wanted to keep slavery out. They were coming in from some of the northern states, New England states, to really mainly stop the expansion of the slave trade. Uh, But you also had border ruffians coming in from the south, from places like Missouri, that wanted that place to become a, a slave state. And that, that's bloody Kansas, right? Am I getting that correct? That's what that yeah. was called. Okay. Yeah. I was, doing, I was randomly, I was randomly doing some research about Franklin Pierce for a different episode and learned a, a, a bit more about bloody Kansas because I know that that was caused by Franklin Pierce's actions at that time as president. And I was like, oh, I don't, I, I knew about this, but I didn't know how how deep it ran. But that's interesting that it was impacting Buffalo Bill's life at the exact same time. Yeah, yeah. No, Buffalo Bill's father, in fact, was stabbed when he stood up on a soapbox and offered his views and said he did not believe in the expansion of slavery. Um, later on, they kind of changed that to where it was, he, he was opposed to slavery. And that's that still was unclear because you had a lot of people that really weren't too worried if slavery stayed in the Southern states. They just didn't want to see it expand. And, and so we're not exactly sure where Cody's father fell in that debate, but um, he offered his opinions and uh, someone got up and stabbed him. He survived the wound, but um, basically spent the rest of his life kind of hiding out from these border ruffians that wanted to kill him. And the family believed that the the stabbing and life on the run basically caused their father to die an early death. Um, In fact, uh, Buffalo Bill's sister said her father was one of the first to die in the cause of, uh, you know, opposition to slavery. But that put Buffalo Bill, the loss of the father put Buffalo Bill, young Will Cody, into the position where he had to take care of his mother and his sisters. And that's when he really started going out west. He got a job as a an assistant on a freight train, um, basically a messenger. So on these big columns of mule trains crossing the plains, he would go back and forth between the wagons. Um, so he saw a lot of the early west um, traveled a lot of those trails like the Santa Fe Trail, the uh, North Platte Trail, and the the Kansas Trail that went into um, Colorado there where the gold rush was really starting to take place in 1859. So he was exposed to the West and the territory, the terrain and everything. He may have served as a member of the original Pony Express, the remarkable mail service that ran throughout the West in the months just before the American Civil War broke out, which was the very same war that Bill would soon serve in. There are disputes about whether Bill actually served with the Pony Express or if it was just part of his own mythos as he was only a teenager when the Express fired up. He was about 15 years old, maybe a bit too young to be part of the Pony Express, but 
He said it happened, and we don't really know if it was true or not. He joined the Union as a part of the 7th Kansas Cavalry, which was itself made up of volunteers, some of whom were friends of Bill's. After the war, he'd marry and have children, settle down home, and have an attempt at domestic life. But Bill's wandering childhood seemed to keep that engine running for him permanently, and he would take up other tasks throughout his 20s, making many an odd job to feed his family. The list includes stagecoach driver, contractor for railroad companies and the Army, and even, quote, a half-hearted effort at innkeeping near Leavenworth, end quote. One of these odd jobs gave him his name, Buffalo Bill. Apparently in the late 1860s, he worked as a buffalo hunter and provided thousands of buffalo carcasses to feed the Kansas Pacific Railroad. The name Buffalo Bill was because, well, the guy provided a lot of buffalo. William Cody was now Buffalo Bill. But though Bill was on the right side of history for the Civil War serving in the Union, the West put him in a more compromised spot. He was a scout for the 5th Cavalry as America mounted several wars against the native people of the West, the same wars that would kill infamous U.S. Commander George Custer. It brought Bill massive notoriety being a part of these wars, and his experiences fighting in the Indian Wars would be recreated on stage in his shows. But he became a bit of a household name in the years after the Civil War because of his incredible ability at hunting. He eventually got caught up in the Civil War, and then after the war, he came out and started working as a scout for the military because he had so much familiarity with the people of the West and the routes and the trails. And it's through his military service as a scout that he really becomes prominent. But how exactly do you become a household name in the 1870s? You know, we don't live in a time even of photographs, really. Photographs were very limited at this time, and newspapers could hardly print that many, and word traveled slowly, you know? How do you become famous in the 1870s? Well, in Bill's case, you lead people on hunts, including famous politicians. Bill's outdoorsman abilities, his marksmanship and knack for hunting, made him the right person for one particular publicity stunt. Bill carried a rare skill for men of his ilk. He was charismatic. He had a personality and good-natured quality to him that made people just like him. So even though he could walk the walk, he also just had the right charisma about him. People liked him. He had the it factor, you know? So a general in the army assigned Bill to lead the Grand Duke Alexei of Russia on a hunt. Apparently that's the sort of thing that makes people very interested in you at that time, especially when it was a widely talked about hunt as it was. The figure of the man who led the Grand Duke on a massive hunt in the West, the man who served in the Indian Wars out West, the stories about Buffalo Bill began to spread. And what really put him over the top was his actions at the Battle of Summit Springs. Uh, Summit Springs, the 5th Cavalry was being guided by Cody. He guided him to this village where there were two white women who were being held captive by Cheyenne dog soldiers. And during the engagement, Buffalo Bill shot and killed a warrior by the name of Tall Bull, who was considered to be the leader of this village. And uh, they managed to rescue one of the white captives. Uh, Buffalo Bill had nothing to do with the rescue. Uh, Buffalo Bill did probably kill Tall Bull, mainly because he wanted Tall Bull's horse. He was impressed with the horse and shot the the warrior shot this dog soldier took the horse and then found out later who the warrior was when uh Tobble's widow started crying when she saw cody carrying or carrying uh, cody with the horse the public figure the character of buffalo bill 
was being talked about. Not just because of his exploits, but because people started writing tall tales that headed back from the west to the east. Think about this. I bet you right now could name half a dozen Wild West figures that have ascended to folklore status. Let's play the game. I'll give you a beat. Name a few off the top of your head. Just say them in your head. Wild West figures. Maybe they're real, maybe they're not. You don't know. But think of a few that there are movies about, that you've heard stories about, that, that are referenced often when you talk about outlaws, cowboys, all sorts of things. I bet you said at least one of the following names. Jesse James. Doc Holliday, Wyatt Earp, Kit Carson, Calamity Jane, Wild Bill Hickok, Bass Reeves, Billy the Kid, Butch Cassidy, right? I bet you've heard of most of those names. Those are real people. They aren't made up. They were real people who did real things. But then the stories about them spread and became folklore, became tall tales, became part of the American mythos. All those people are real. Maybe you didn't know that because you've seen movies about them or TV shows about them and you assume that there was some fabrication to them. Obviously there is, they're fiction movies, but they were real people, real names, real figures that existed in the West. It's a safe bet that everyone listening to this show was born decades after these figures died, but their legends vastly outlived them. That is because even during their own lifetimes, many of them became figures of American fiction. Their stories were retold and oversold in newspapers, magazines, and dime novels, where one could read of the exploits of the bandits, outlaws, cowboys, and rascals that lived beyond that Mississippi River. Heroes and villains of the West. Buffalo Bill found himself one of those figures, and in 1872, Buffalo Bill became not just the figure in the story, nor the character represented. He became a part of the performance. He played himself on stage, telling his own stories. He wasn't alone at times. He had a friend named Texas Jack. Their show was produced by a man named Ned Buntline. It was after that that Cody ran into a dime novelist by the name of Ned Buntline. And Ned Buntline took this event and really worked it over into this very dramatic, sensational story that had very little to do with reality other than including the names of some of the people who were there, um, which in my opinion, this really kind of is when Cody kind of figures out this combination very powerful combination of presenting a very dramatic story but with elements of authenticity so you have you know this wild narrative but yet the people that are involved in this narrative are are actual people and the right. event is an actual event and so as a reader especially you think about juveniles reading these dime novels it's kind of hard to sort out what is drama and what is real. And Cody becomes a, a real-life adventurer, a real-life hero uh, through the dime novels. And this is really what kind of launches him. And then eventually that leads him into a life on stage acting. This show was a massive success. And though critics found it to be, quote-unquote, rubbish, audiences adored it. <laughs> That's typical. We still have that problem today, don't we? 
The shows toured for years, if you can believe it, selling out town after town. In my mind, what makes this show a sensation in the moment was that it was just the real thing. At one point, even the great gunslinger Wild Bill Hickok was a part of the show. The legends were coming to life before you. I'll post some pictures of these shows. It is surreal to imagine these men telling these stories in front of audiences, reflecting the real stories of their lives to audiences. People were buying these stories and tall tales in the publications every day, fascinated by the world beyond in the years after the Civil War. But now, instead of them being just words on a page, or really just maybe an actor in a costume performing them in front of them, this was flesh and blood. This was the man, the bona fides. This is Buffalo Bill. He's done it. It would have been like a living museum happening in front of you, a window to another world. Um, I like to say, um, you know, Buffalo Bill, when he's on stage, it would be like watching John Wayne uh, recreate the raising of the flag on Mount Suribachi if John Wayne had actually fought on the sands of Iwo Jima. In our modern age, we have performers acting as heroes in movies, recreating stories, historical or fictional, whatever. Imagine that person actually did the thing that they are reenacting for you. And imagine it wasn't through a screen. It was right before your eyes. You could see the man himself. That was the magic of Buffalo Bill. He was the real thing. It's such a surreal experience to think that here this guy, the real Buffalo Bill, who's a dime novel hero, is now on stage playing himself. And, and Cody, I, I have to really give him credit because he realized the stage is good. Um, I'm making a pretty good living on this, but it really lacks the spectacle of a large, grandiose presentation. You know, he can't do things like the the riding of horses. You know, a lot of the shooting acts were fairly limited because of the stage. And so you can kind of see his mind, the gears in his mind turning and thinking long down the line uh, that eventually he needed to do something more in the arena. And so in 1883, he launched the, the early beginnings of Buffalo Bill's Wild West, the outdoor presentations. As the Gilded Age and the Industrial Age were well and truly rolling in the United States, Bill expanded what precisely his career and performance would be. For three decades, the Wild West show was one of, if not the most popular form of traveling entertainment. And there was obviously competition throughout the run. We spoke at the end of last season about the Ringling Brothers, the other massive traveling entertainment around the turn of the century. Well, the Ringling Brothers really became the frontrunners in the circus after they purchased a different circus, the Barnum and Bailey Circus. The latter of the two names, Bailey, belongs to one James A. Bailey. Well, as the turn of the century approached, Bailey was operating his circus by himself. P.T. Barnum was dead now, and the Ringling Brothers were hot on Bailey's tail. Buffalo Bill himself was massively famous, but the show he ran was bigger than his budget could sustain. Bill had a big show, and he wanted to put it on in the world, but he kept only kind of doing one-city engagements, going into the middle of things. He performed at the Columbia Exposition in Chicago, and he performed in New York in 1894. At the 1890s, he was really figuring out what this show could be and taking it to these massive venues. Chicago, New York, putting them on in the middle of cities, but if he wanted to really make money, he had to take them to a lot of places, and he just didn't have the means to do that. He found himself more and more in debt as the 1890s rambled on and something had to give. Luckily, James A. Bailey was similarly struggling in a post-Barnum world, so a mutually assured partnership could provide some of the relief to both of their financial struggles. Bailey needed money 
Bill was spending too much and had no way to get his show around. The deal was that Bailey would help pay for transportation, a necessary but costly part of the business. He could use Bailey's very many trains. In return, Bailey would take some of the profits from Bill's show. Bill didn't have to spend as much, and Bailey could add to his own income. It would allow the two to keep alive as the Ringling Brothers' profile grew. It was a brilliant business move in retrospect and allowed both of them to survive. Though Barnum and Bailey would fold under the Ringling Brothers, the Buffalo Bill Wild West show survived. And the show, Jeremy points out, changed a lot over the course of the 30 or so years of existence. So if I were to buy a ticket and sit down in a seat in the 1800s or the 1900s to see this Buffalo Bill show, what sort of spectacle would I expect to see? Here is how Jeremy describes it. The first real presentation was in 1883 when he joined with uh, Doc Carver, and it was heavily focused on shooting, uh, marksmanship. Um, so there were a lot of shooting acts. Uh, there was some recreations. You know, there was a Deadwood stagecoach that was attacked by Indians and saved by Buffalo Bill and his riders. But uh, Doc Carver and Cody split. And so in 1884, we get Buffalo Bill's Wild West. And the early show really kind of recreated some of the things that uh, Buffalo Bill was involved with. So. Um, so in 1876, he had fought at the Battle of Warbonnet Creek. He had fought and killed another Cheyenne warrior by the name of Yellow Hair and secured his scalp and called it to, proclaimed it to be the first scalp for Custer, the revenge for the loss of Custer and all his men at the Battle of the Little Bighorn. So he recreated some of that, but he also had a lot of shooting acts as well. Attack of the Deadwood Stagecoach. You know, and then eventually he started bringing in more and more things like Cowboys. Uh, Attack of the Homesteader Cabin was a popular act. And then when he went to Europe, he came back in 1893 with the Congress of Rough Riders of the World. And so he put uh, Cowboys, Vaqueros, Lakota, um, all alongside French, British, German cavalry units. Uh, brought in the Russian Cossacks that were actually uh, from the province of Georgia. I think he called them Russian Cossacks because he didn't want people to confuse the state of Georgia with the right. province of Georgia. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Keep it simple. Arab riders, um, you name it. He brought in kind of anyone that had these really good equestrian skills. So that really kind of ingrains it into the culture of America, especially the idea of cowboy it's such a prominent part of our memory of the West. So, um, so yeah, he really left a cultural legacy. And it's interesting because you look into the reality, the historical reality. And, uh, you know, for example, uh, marksmanship, shooting skills, you know, more Oregon Trail immigrants were killed by accidental gunshots than Indians during that expedition, you know, during that migration period. But, you would think watching any movie that every Oregon Trail immigrant was a dead shot, and they weren't unless they were, they were all shooting. Clint Eastwood. Yeah, yeah. Um, the Deadwood Stagecoach. I mean, you can't watch a uh, Western movie today without a stagecoach in there getting attacked by Indians, and that rarely, rarely occurred out in the American West. Because let's face it, there's no way these businessmen were about to risk losing assets by sending them out into hostile territory. Um, you know, probably only happened a handful of times, but you would think it happened on a daily basis after you went to Buffalo Bill's Wild West. It really is startling in this conversation how clear it is that 
Though Buffalo Bill really did live in the West and experience it firsthand, he also perpetuated many of the myths of the West that we still have to this day. As Jeremy said, there was reality and there was story, as we have so often seen on this show. Can we lay a lot of that myth's origins or falsehoods at Buffalo Bill's feet? Did he twist reality into the legend through the show? Uh, Buffalo Bill was certainly one of the main contributors to the cowboy myth. There's no question about that. Uh, you know, even though Buffalo Bill basically made his career as a scout for the military, and if he was in any military engagements, he was supported by cavalry troops. But when you get to the Wild West performances, those cavalry troops kind of get pushed aside, and it's the cowboys who become the main focus. So when he rides in to save the stagecoach, he's backed up with the cowboys. When he sells the settler's cabin from being burned by Indians, you know, it's the cowboys that are behind him saving the day. I mean, most of the working class coming in there and they're leaving thinking the cowboy is a working class hero. He's making blockbusters. He's making popcorn flicks. That's what the Wild oh, yeah. West was, oh, right? Yeah. yeah, no, and I mean, and he's, he's again, he's showing how, you know, how they're excellent shootists uh, with their trick shooting. And uh, he had a lot of equestrian contests, uh, races between different groups of the, the riders of the Congress of Rough Riders, um, even bucking bronco contests, things like that. You know, so, so yeah, he really elevates the cowboy and uh, kind of sets some of those required skills that the heroic cowboy needed. He spent 30 years doing just that, sharpshooting, historical reenactments, international horse riding shows, and so much more. And though the show evolved as time went on, the work just grew and grew. So that by the time Bill finally brought the show to Florida, it was, safe to say, a lot different. And so was he. When Buffalo Bill starts to work with, with Bailey, James Bailey of Barman Bailey, and after that point in time, Bailey kind of was the managing uh, person behind the show and where it traveled. And that's when they really started doing a lot of these overnight performances in various towns, making these travels all around the United States and even back into Europe around you know, the early 20th century. Um, when Bailey passed away, Buffalo Bill found himself partnering with Pawnee Bill, Pawnee Bill's Far East. And the show really took on a different character because Pawnee Bill brought in a lot of Asian qualities. Um, so you would see things like elephants, uh, Asian acrobats. Um, they even had um, people from uh, Australia, um, just a real diverse group of people. It was almost like a, a regular circus and that you would have seen at that time period in Buffalo Bill's Wild West. And that lasted until 1913. And then 1913, the Buffalo Bills Wild West and Pawnee Bill were seized for receivership, forced into bankruptcy. And Buffalo Bill became part of the Sells Floto Circus. And basically at that point in time, he was just really, you know, we would ride in the arena, wave at the crowd, and that was that. And then he was performing until uh, just a few months before he passed away with the Miller brothers. So he had always hoped, you know, he would make it big with the show business and could retire. But he just kind of things started falling apart on him in those later years. And he found himself constantly having to perform 
And he, he realized that you know, he was getting at an age that he probably couldn't do that anymore. And he complained a lot about the hours and the saddle and the toil that um, toll it took on his body. It was kind of sad those later years. The time he would have been going through Florida would have been his farewell tour. And his farewell tour kind of took on uh, something similar to the Rolling Stones farewell tours. You know, people started joking that, uh, you know, oh, here's another farewell <laughs> tour. So by the time he gets down to Florida, thing, you know, it's it's later in the process of the Buffalo Bills Wild West evolution. Um, he was getting up there and he, he's getting tired of performing. Um, it would have had a very different quality to it. I mean, the people who saw it in Jacksonville in 1907 would have seen what the original Buffalo Bills Wild West was like. And that was the only time, only place he appeared in that year in Florida, as, as you know from your research. But by the time he comes in in 1912, that would have been a farewell tour. That was evident to newspapers from the time. Here's some quotes from uh, an Orlando newspaper from 1912. This article is from October 23rd, 1912. Buffalo Bill came into town a day earlier on the 22nd. And here is what the Orlando newspaper had to say. It's not exactly a rave review. Quote, it was by no means wonderful, but everybody had a good time and the day was a merry one. End quote. Jeez. <laughs> Apparently, the writer was quite bitter because of some complications in the production. The show's venue was a total mess. The first option was compromised. There was too much sand underneath that didn't allow for the circus tent to go up. Quote, the earth was too soft and the big wagons bogged. End quote. Eww. Buffalo Bill himself was in fact there and the newspaper says Buffalo Bill was, quote, nearing 80. End quote. Um... No, in reality, Bill wasn't even 70. He was actually, by my estimate, about 66 at the time. 1912, 1840. Yeah, he was 66 years old. He wasn't nearing 80. Good Lord. Not sure what the writer here was thinking. Maybe he was just being mean. I don't know. Anyway, here's some of the lovely prose about the show that the writer had to say. Quote, The old man of the West has come and gone, strutted his day upon our stage, and all told it was worthwhile. The show probably wasn't all that was expected. Still, it keyed us up, put the nerves a tingle, gave us something to talk about. End quote. Quite a review. Later, the writer notes the rumor circulating about Bill, saying the expectation was he would soon retire from, quote, the boards or the turf, the limelight or whatever his stage may be, end quote. It was true. I mean, as Jeremy said, this was his farewell tour, though it was a long farewell tour. Here's where the criticism of the show comes. The writer says, quote, it was a show. That about sums it up. Nothing wonderful, nothing to put the town agape and make us marvel. Just a heap big lot of action mixed with music to stir up the blood and make the small change circulate, end quote. Yikes! Also, music is spelled M-O-O-S-I-C. Is that a pun? Music? Like, from a cow? Because it was a Wild West show? I don't know, that's just how it was written in the, in the paper. I decided to read it, meaning music, but man... That's a tough review. It, it's almost like Bill's act was growing old, almost like a, a, a blockbuster that had outstayed its welcome. It was popcorn fare at the time, right? And that was starting to just be empty spectacle for this reviewer, at least. It was 1912 now, and perhaps the shine was off the apple. It was just sound and fury. It didn't quite have the luster it used to. 
The Florida soil, as I mentioned, proved a problem. Our soft sand soil clearly didn't work well for all the stomping and horseplay of the Buffalo Bill show. Quote, Florida sand mixed with water and some magic is a fine thing on which to produce celery and lettuce, but putting circus over on it when you're used to rock-ribbed strata of blizzard-swept New England is a problem divorced from the rule of three. End quote. I don't know what that means. I'm going to be honest with you. I, I, the rule of three is a comedy rule. I don't know. A problem divorced from the rule of three. If you know what that means, send me an email, wfmbot at gmail.com. I don't, I don't know what they're saying there. Anyway, when the wagons arrive to the location in Orlando, I can't tell where they're referring to. They keep calling it the Polo Grounds. Now, Orlando had a country club at that time that had polo, but there's also the Central Florida Fairgrounds, which have hosted events as far back as the 1880s. I'm going to assume it was on the Central Florida Fairgrounds in the, the middle of eastern Orlando. My searching did not turn up much to, to answer that question. They may have moved it as well. It seems like the first location or the location that was planned for was imperfect, but the show happened anyway. It, there may not have been a tent, though, which must have been brutal under the Florida sun. At least it was October. One quote is attributed to the field manager who said, quote, We've got a contract to go in there, and in there we're going, if we can get glue enough into this Ponce de Leon earth to hold the outfit, end quote. Pretty good. The show went on, and by the end of the article, the writer leaves us with a bit of cheer. Quote, The old man, himself a patriarch, made us young for a day. Some more magic, eh? End quote. I think more newspaper articles should end with eh? You know? What do you think? All told, he visited Florida nine times, perhaps ten. I've seen that there was another report that he visited in Jacksonville in 1898, though that is not on the document that I'm seeing that lists every show that he apparently did throughout his career. But nine to ten times, I believe, he visited. Seven of those trips were in 1912 in his so-called farewell tour. In 1912, he went to Lake City on October 17th, then Gainesville the next day, Ocala after that. He took a break on the 20th, then he did Tampa on the 21st, then Orlando, and then Palatka. And after that, he closed up his show in Jacksonville. He had done previous shows in Jacksonville, one in 1907 and another in 1909, and that one that may have occurred in 1898 where his riders put on a spectacle, that one occurred at what is today Morgan County Fairgrounds, or at least somewhere near those fairgrounds in 1898. So it seems he did four shows in Jacksonville. Clearly Jacksonville was the city in our state at that time where Cody felt most draw to perform. It was where he did his final show in Florida. Though his farewell tour went on for uh, much longer, at least into the next year or so, but it was his farewell to Florida in October of 1912. His last show in Jacksonville and his last show in Florida was October 24th, 1912, five years before he died. And as for that, Annie Oakley, who suffered that terrible accident in Florida, she did perform in at least that 1898 show in Jacksonville. We know that for a fact, which I find pretty remarkable. She performed in the Buffalo Bill show in Jacksonville in 1898. But as I said, that injury that occurred to her in Florida, it did not stop her from shooting pennies out of the air just a few months later. Yeah, uh, Annie, of course, was one of the biggest celebrities with Buffalo Bill's Wild West. And Buffalo Bill... And his, his team realized that she was going to be a great draw. And so she uh, was brought on board with Buffalo Bills Wild West. She traveled with them to London. But um, I think after London, she kind of felt like she could, hand out, could head out on her own and didn't need Buffalo Bill. But eventually she did come back. It, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Buffalo Bill wrote an account of his trip through uh, through London and appearing before Queen Victoria. 
And he basically ignored Annie Oakley in the whole memoir. Uh, so you could probably tell he was a little upset that she had left, but she did come back. And I, th I think Annie Oakley, um, you know, she really represented what Buffalo Bill viewed as the ideal American woman. Uh, Buffalo Bill actually was an early advocate for women's suffrage, women's clubs, women athletics. But he was very specific in his arguments, he'd say, as long as they retain their feminine charms. And so it was okay for a woman to go out and shoot like a man, you know, shoot with, uh, with men and comp comp competition, uh, go out bird hunting, things like that. But she needed to retain her feminine charms. And he brought in a lot of people like that. There was Lillian Smith, who was another sharpshootist. And she drew a lot of crowds, but uh, you know, she went on and she took on a, an Indian persona uh, to continue her career. And she started working with the Miller brothers. But for Annie Oakley, she was kind of the idea, idea Western woman to put up in the arena there. And, uh, you know, they apparently, you know, they would work on and off with one another. Um, after Buffalo Bill passed away, Annie Oakley wrote one of the more moving tributes to Buffalo Bill, honoring him for his generosity and his skill as an entertainer. So, so yeah, there was it was an interesting relationship, um, and uh, sometimes business got in the way. But I think overall, they had a lot of respect for one another. Whatever happened between them, they loved each other in their own unusual way. It seems like that was what Bill Cody did best. He left an impact on the people he met with his astounding charisma, a figure larger than life. There's a reason they call them tall tales. He, perhaps, was the tallest tale of them all. When he died in 1917, the world was an astronomically different place than when he entered it. The Wild West had been around before he was born, but he lived through the Pony Express, the Gold Rushes, the Civil War, the Indian Wars of Removal. He saw cities pop up, train lines expand, states get born, and by the time he was dead, Airplanes soared over Europe in the heart of the First World War. Hell, Florida had only been a state for one year when he was born. In 1846, he was born in 1845, we became a state. In his 70 short years of life, the United States changed around him. And to me, he was, by the time he was gone, the last of a very bygone age. An era that we had left behind in the 20th century. In the 107 years since he died, much longer than his own lifetime, his name has not slipped from the public imagination against all odds. I still wear the hat of a football team named as a reference to his name, and somehow you have known that name longer than you can remember. If that's not a legend, I don't know what is. And for just a moment, the old man of the West, Buffalo Bill Cody, brought his show to our humble Sunshine State. Nowhere near the West, very far from it, in fact. For just that moment that he trod on the boards or the turf, the limelight, or whatever his stage may have been, the legend of the West was alive in Florida. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I am so glad that you were here. I am so glad to be back making episodes of this show for you. Man, we have got some amazing stuff coming. I cannot wait to share all of the adventures. Oh, man. I'm recording this before I go on an adventure, but by the time you're hearing it, I've already gone on that adventure. I've probably posted about it. I went to the Capitol during the legislative session. I got to hang out 
Oh my gosh, I'm so excited. We've got so many amazing things to talk about, so many great deep dives into history. We're gonna go to the World's Fair, or we're gonna, you know, time travel back in time to the World's Fair. We've got some awesome stuff. I've got such a massive list of episodes this season, I don't even have, I don't even know how we're gonna get to all of them. So if you're excited for that, please share the show on Instagram and Facebook at WFM Pod. We're gonna be posting some pictures of Buffalo Bill and Annie Oakley on the show. Go share them, share the episodes, send them to people who you think might dig this story and get them ready for a new season ahead. You can also send the show an email at WFMPod at gmail.com. And you can also leave a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It means a lot to me, and it helps the show reach even more people who want to hear stories like this. Thank you. I'd like to give a massive thank you to Jeremy Johnston and the Buffalo Bills Center of the West because this episode would not have existed without him. His information was just exhilarating. He was such a great chat. So all my best to him and the Buffalo Bills Center of the West. Please go check out their website. They are an amazing location. And though Wyoming is not exactly a a nearby trip for me the next time I go out west myself, it is at the top of my list of places to visit because it just sounds remarkable. Thank you to them and thank you to Jeremy. I've also included links, as always, to other research that I did in this episode, including some links from the Buffalo Bill Center of the West and from our friend Rick Kilby, so you can read even more about what was going on with Buffalo Bill and his fascinating history. All the music used in this episode was originally composed. All right, folks, next week it is Valentine's Day week, and as has become a strange tradition on this show, we like to tell a little bit of crime history for Valentine's Day. So on February 12th, we are diving into a figure I have long wanted to write about for, goodness, about four years now, Bill McCoy, the origin of the term, the real McCoy a rum runner extraordinaire, a, a, a real pirate of the 1920s, a figure I've always wanted to talk about, and we're going to have our friends from the Mob Museum out in Vegas to come on and tell us more about that. So please be sure to tune in, send this episode to a friend, and until next Monday, be good to yourself, be good to others, drink more water, and hey, a new year, it's back. Go Gator and muddy the water. Have a great week. I will see you next Monday.